So we are, I'm going to preach a pretty short sermon today on um, uh, this idea of identity as we're kind of doing some things, wrapping up our uh, outreach talk, moving into the sermon series next uh, semester, which is, uh, we haven't really titled it yet, and I've just now outlined it, but it's going to be something along the lines of identity in church history. We're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian in terms of identity. Last week, I gave you some ideas that I'll cover really, really quickly, um, but you might want to listen to it. Uh, it's pretty short about this idea of identity and what it is and what it's not. But particularly what we're going to do is use church figures, uh, and I don't mean folks from the scripture. We are going to use a, a few of them, but the bigger goal is to use people post, uh, you know, first century all the way up to our current day and age, the theologians, uh, scholars, um, pastors, uh, just people who are faithful Christians, and how they've, they've sort of thought about themselves, all right? So we'll use some of that, bring some of that in, and I think you're going to like it. It's going to be pretty interesting um, for sure, all right? But last uh, week, um, I basically gave you an idea of my timeline for identity, which was pretty awesome, okay? A lot of you learned a lot about me and how I've gone from uh, you know, skater to redneck in a matter of three or four years, and um, talked a little bit about the difference between identity and individualism, that identity is, is basically just how you see yourself and why you see yourself the way you do, all right, and uh, versus individualism, meaning that, you know, I have a tendency to kind of emphasize my own abilities, that kind of thing. And we talked about how the Bible talks about identity a lot. Anytime you see the phrase, you are, okay, or I'm going to give you another phrase that would be really helpful if you're, you want to do a sort of a uh, Bible study along the lines of this. Anytime Paul uses his favorite phrase, in Christ, all right, or in the Lord, that is to you or should be to you an immediate indicator that he's talking about identity. So you've got the you are passages and then you've got the in Christ or in the Lord passages. There's over, over 170. This is Paul's favorite phrase. Because Paul talks a lot in the scripture about Christian identity. And we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on. But if you're interested in just looking those up, uh, you know, go for it. It'll be helpful. And then I left off last time with the idea that often in evangelism and in thinking through how we talk to people about God, we often forget to talk about God's character, which is really the baseline of all uh, making disciples. It says so in Matthew 28 when he talks about, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's about identity. It's about getting people on track with who God is. And I'm going to uh, emphasize that a little bit more, talk about it, explain it a little bit more today. All right, quickly. Um, and that often what we do instead of getting to the heart of people's identity is we do a lot of behavior modification, a lot of the maturing aspect of Christianity. We're used to that. We're around Christians. We want them the, to grow in, in, in the spirit. We want them to uh, change their old habits. But that's not ever where we start in outreach. We start with establishing God's identity with people and giving them the opportunity to decide, is he who he says he is? Do I believe this? And in fact, many of us, even in a church this small, I would expect never really kind of struggled with and thought through God's identity. You kind of joined into the club thinking of yourselves already as a Christian and started the path going down the idea of, oh, I'm going to grow and I'm going to mature and I'm going to become like everyone else around me. But if you forget to start with the identity part, with the God part, that the whole purpose of this thing isn't being a good person, but being like God, made in the image of God, 
then you've gone backwards and it's not really going to work, all right? So if that makes sense, great. If it doesn't, talk about it a little bit more. So two passages, well, actually, let me read you a quote that I found from Oscar Wilde. I don't know much about Oscar Wilde. I know he's an Irish playwright and poet, and he was jailed towards the end of his life for being gay, <clears throat> or at least uh, being accused of being a sodomite, being gay. And he quotes uh, from one of his more profound works, which actually has the word profound in it, um, while he's in prison, sort of writes a letter towards the end of his two-year prison sentence. I actually give him pen and paper. And so he writes this quote, and I really, really like it a lot, and I'm going to read it to you. When first I was put into prison, some people advised me to try and forget who I was. It was ruinous advice. It's only by realizing what I am that I have found comfort of any kind. Now I am advised by others to try in my release to forget that I have ever been in prison at all. I know that would be equally fatal. It would mean that I would always be haunted by an intolerable sense of disgrace and that those things that are meant for me, for me as much as for anybody else, the beauty of the sun and the moon, the pageant of the seasons, the music of daybreak and the silence of great nights, the rain falling through the leaves, the dew creeping over the grass and making it silver, would all be tainted for me and lose their healing power and their power of communicating joy. It's a really weird statement, but he's basically just saying if he forgets his experiences, he's not really being true to what he's uh, uh, gone through and how he's been shaped and all those things. Now, listen to this part if you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> to deny, to regret one's own experiences is to arrest one's own development. To deny one's own experiences is to put a lie into the lips of one's own life. It is no less than a denial of the soul. And this is the part that, that really, as I, I read it, it was wonderful. For most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives, a mimicry. Their passions, a quotation. I really like that idea, the thought of that. It reminds me of, of uh, the uh, quote that I mentioned last week in religion and politics, most people's beliefs are gotten secondhand without any examination. Guys, identity is about figuring out who you are amidst all the stuff that you've been told about who you are. That's identity. At the core, it's about truly knowing yourself. Now, what he's talking about here, and if he's talking about uh, you know, being gay, I don't know. I, he doesn't explain it. He doesn't talk about it. But the quote is still very important. It's the idea that our experiences, we can't deny. The things that are, are a part of our identity shape us, make us. And if we're not careful, like we talked about last week, rather than having a true identity that's based and founded in Christ, the image of God, like everybody is, will be satisfied with identities that we've either been uh, ascribed, things like black and white, girl uh, or boy, uh, this nationality, that nationality, or simple categories that make us feel good for the time and communicate meaning, like a redneck or a skater or whatever it is. And the whole point of this identity thing is to really get to the core of who we are and why we believe those things about who we are. So two stories I wanna share with you real quick, come straight from the scripture, and I think they're important about both the character uh, uh, in the story, developing identity, but developing that identity as a result of knowing God more. So Genesis 18 is the first one. And let's just read these stories. I'll make a few comments, and then uh, we'll be done. Genesis 18, yeah. All right. So what we have here without giving a ton, ton, ton of background, is Abraham, 
who has been called by God, sort of out of the blue, okay, and um, a decently wealthy person uh, in a culture that's very unlike anything that we could possibly understand now. The ancient Near East culture was just incredibly different. It's even different from cultures that we have some knowledge of, like the Greek and Roman cultures. It was just very, very different, all right? And God calls him out of where he's at and begins to tell him and make all these crazy promises about giving him, you know, as many kids as the sand on the seashore, which, you know, would sound fine if he and Sarah weren't barren, (laughs) Uh, and just starts making all these promises to him, right? And so Abraham follows, which you've got to kind of think there's probably a little bit of insanity uh, mixed into there for uh, Abraham to follow a God he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, in an environment where there was no such single God doing anything. And Abraham, like so many of the other characters that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, were really super flawed, right? At one point, Abraham's telling kings twice that his Sarah is his sister uh, so that, uh, you know, he doesn't get, like, killed, you know? Uh, even though Sarah actually is his half-sister, uh, which is kind of weird, right? He married his half-sister. Uh, it happens, I guess, in the Bible. Anyway, he kind of wavers back and forth. You have the, the uh, Hagar and Ishmael thing. Weird stuff, right? So here again, sort of for the um, second or third time, God is telling Abraham, hey, listen, trust me. I'm going to give you a kid. And he's going to get specific and he's going to send these three visitors, which are uh, angels. And so let's, uh, let's talk about this. Here we go. Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees. Uh, well, actually, you know what? I don't even want to read that part. Just remember the story. Sarah laughs, right? God's not happy about Sarah laughing. But anyway, these three visitors, okay, stick around for a little while. And then uh, Abraham probably has one of the worst weeks of his entire life, okay? Uh, Because the the things that they go on are pretty tough. So when the men got up to leave, these are the men that told, you know, Abraham and Sarah that, hey, we're going to, God's going to give you some some kids. Well, one kid in particular. Uh, They looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And I think this is rhetorical, right? He's about to tell Abraham. This is a very interesting idea that God is going to inform Abraham of what he and his sovereignty is, what he's about to do. And you see towards the end of the story why he informs him. He informs him because he wants his feedback. Now, I don't know about you, but that is one of the weirdest and strangest things to think of a God that wants feedback from us. And Even that, I'm not so sure is theologically accurate, but we'll just go with it for now, okay? Because it seems like that's actually what's happening. So then the Lord said, or Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So again, here you have this sort of like aside and God is Almost in this passage, according to Moses, trying to convince himself of why should I tell Abraham this now? Is he trustworthy? Will I be able to sort of trust that all these things that are, are, uh, you know, that I've talked to him about are going to happen, going to come to fruition? And he decides, of course, to go ahead and tell Abraham. So the Lord says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. They Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh, 
in the uh, uh, story where I'm about to, to tell about Moses, Moses is a little bit less forthright with God, it seems. Uh, although Abraham, as he moves down with, uh, you know, kind of gets a little bit more scared of what he's asking. But think about how honest this is. So this is where he lives. This is where his brother lives. This is where his family is from. And God has told him, hey, I'm going to wipe out everybody there except for you. And Abraham's like, whoa, 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 wait. Why would you do that? There's good people in this city. I know it for sure. Why would you do that? So all, all of a sudden you get the character of Abraham here. He cares about the people in the city. You know that Abraham isn't blind to how terrible a city that this is, right? I mean, if he's a compassionate, caring guy, it's not like he really wants a whole lot of wicked people to survive. He knows how terrible the city is. He lives in it. He understands it. He sees it each day. day and yet this God that he doesn't understand doesn't know really well at all. He pleads and asks, will you really do this? Why? Why, why do this when there's righteous people in this city? So what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Now these numbers, numbers in the Old Testament are strange, all right? They're symbolic, they're weird. I have no idea the, the numbers that come down through this, the rest of this passage, what their significance is. I'm not for sure anybody really does, but just for the sake of argument, 50 sounds kind of like a lot in a city that probably only had a few hundred in it, you know, maybe. Uh, this wasn't a huge city. So 50 is like, you know, I mean, Abraham's like, all right, 50 people. So then all of a sudden, something really strange happens. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, exclamation point. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? All right, guys, listen. You read this. I don't know how you read this. Abraham is either testing God, testing his character, or he's simply like reminding him, I mean, at the best, hey, wait a second. From what I know about you so far, you're supposed to be a good guy. I know a whole lot of folks in ancient Near East culture that wiped people out and did things through hurricanes and uh, floods and all kinds of other things that were terrible people. Well, I thought you were different than this. And this is a huge point in both his identity as an as a ancient Near East person and his ability to understand God's identity. All right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What's happened here? It seems as if God has changed his mind as a result of what Abraham has asked him. One of the first things I think that it's important in our establishing God's identity, and it's so important that somehow Satan has convinced us that we can't do it, number one, apart from Jesus, and two, that it's probably better that we try not to focus on it too much because it seems too difficult. But one of the most important things about establishing God's identity is deciding if God is good. If what you read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament suggests that God is good. And a lot of us simply do not ask this question to us, ourselves enough. We read things, we may assume he's good, we may just avoid passages that make it sound like he's not, but let me, ask, let me just make it really clear, the first and most important question that we have to establish for ourselves and have to establish for other people is, is God good? Is he good? Because it's one thing that he exists, okay? The demons believe that, but is God 
good? Is he a good God? Is he okay? Is he righteous? Does he care about people? Or am I simply just worshiping another God among a litany of other gods that have their own agenda, their own purpose, their own territory, their own favorite people? Is God good? All right? And this is the exact question that Abraham is trying to figure out right now. And God is trying to help him understand. So then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? Guys, there is no way that number one, God couldn't be at least a little humored by this back and forth. And two, that the whole uh, uh, statement, the whole conversation is just so strange because you know what happens next. Abraham keeps whittling it down until he's down to 10. And you have to ask the question, like, did he, it was 10 like the first number? Like when I negotiate with people uh, for Craigslist deals or whatever, I have a fixed number in my head. And if you do not have a fixed number in your head, you are a terrible negotiator. So if someone, you know, has a number and they'll, you know, they throw things out and people have all kinds of weird ways of negotiating. I had a trailer that I sold yesterday that was 1375. And in my ads, I always put absolutely firm uh, price, do not ask uh, for anything less. And that immediately weeds out anybody who's going to come and you know, try to go too low on me. Okay? But I've still got a range. You've got to have a range. So it's 1375 is how much the trailer is. And so he's going to Venmo me. And he says, okay, I'm going to Venmo you 1250, right? And this is what's called a passive negotiator, all right? He's not actually going to negotiate. He's just going to sort of be funny about it and see if I can just like, I guess, miss the fact that he's paying me less money. Now, if I'm not good with numbers and I'm forgetting what I've sold each week, Maybe then I'd be like, oh yeah, twelve fifty. I think that's what we said. We didn't read the ad. Not gonna happen. I'm like, no, thirteen seventy five. He's like, all right, all right, all right. I know, I know. That's good. That's good. And you know, as it goes on, he's like, and then he this is he further passively negotiates by saying, you know, well, see, what I was gonna do is I was gonna offer you thirteen hundred, but you know, it, it, it's no big deal. Um, and yeah, it's whatever, man. I have the my my mind, my number is thirteen hundred. Like, oh yeah, man, you can have it for thirteen hundred. He's like, really? It's great. Had he negotiated, done some different things, it would have been way better. But, but uh, Abraham is not a passive negotiator. He's a hypothetical negotiator. So like, let's just say this happens. I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying if it does, where are you going to be with that? You know, it's a way of, of putting yourself completely outside the situation and making it like, you know. Anyway, this is what Noah does. Gets all the way down to 10. God is willing to spare 10. Turns out there's not enough uh, uh, righteous people in that whole city to make up for the 10. And as you see, there's only five or six people that actually leave in Lot's family. Remember the next story that comes right after this is the whole, those same angels go down to the town. The guys want to rape them. Lot's like, oh, take my daughters instead. And you're like, oh, what is wrong with Lot? Lot is a, something's really wrong with him. And uh, some people spiritualize that story as if, well, you know, he wanted to protect the angels. Yeah, right. Lot didn't want to protect the angels. He probably wanted to protect his reputation and be hospitable to men by letting his daughters, you know, be the ones that were used and not him. Lot is not a good character. Um, so, you know, the whole story kind of goes on. But I'll just say this about this exchange. If this is pretty much our first, besides Noah, most important, faithful, basic exchange between God and the father of our faith, and the first thing that Abraham is interested to do is make sense of, God, are you good? That should tell us something about how we interact with God and how we talk to people about God. We have to establish the fact that God is good, or at least open up the door for people to question whether or not God is really good. 
And too many of us, I think we've gone to Jesus to sort of prove that. And of course, Jesus is the exact representation of that. But guys, the Old Testament authors wrote the scripture to show us how good God was. So for us to read back into it, something less than God's goodness is at least to sort of say, well, these authors had no idea what they were talking about in their own interactions with God. So that's important. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Exodus 3. So is he good? Does he care about people? The first identity marker, the very first thing we've got to figure out about God. So now we're at Exodus 3. And this story is so much more interesting. And I want to tell you so much more about the background, but I'm not going to. Uh, got to make room for, you know, all the other things that we're going to do in worship today. All right. So here you've got Moses. Moses is a very interesting character. Many of us, unfortunately, have these uh, childhood stories uh, in our mind. And so we, we tend to not be very interested in the story because we think we've heard it. We've experienced it, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah, we'll be in three. Anyway, to give you a quick background here, Egypt, which is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, has gone through about two, that's really about a thousand years of unrest. They had the old kingdom where everything was more or less centralized. Everyone believed in what was going on uh, with the emperor uh, or the pharaoh, which was basically divine in himself. Okay, he had the, the only connection between the various gods, uh, the sun god and you know, all this, uh, those things. And in Egypt basically uh, was an economic powerhouse because they had the Nile River. The Nile would flood each year and it would just be fertile for the whole rest of the, uh, the year, okay? Now, uh, then there's this sort of middle kingdom in Egypt, which is a bunch of people start to split up. There's this huge influx of what are called Semitic or, or really Asiatic people that come in because Semitic really wasn't kind of a thing um, yet. And they start to kind of take over the northern parts of the kingdom and start to fight back. And this is the middle kingdom where all these different pharaohs are trying to kind of fight and you know, figure out who's in charge. And then you've got the newer kingdom, which is where this takes place. There's this huge, massive amount of Asiatic peoples in the northeastern part of the Egypt, or of Egypt, which is a big deal. And so in order to try to counter their numbers, okay, the Pharaoh starts to do all kinds of crazy things, enslave them, uh, you know, gets to the point where finally, in order to like uh, actually curb their population, infant infanticide, infanticide, infanticide. That just sounds too much like fantasy. It doesn't, no, it doesn't. Anyway, uh, so starts killing uh, Egyptian kids, right? Well, actually, it's not completely the truth because this whole story of Moses getting kind of like uh, put out in a basket was a very common thing. In fact, uh, the Egyptians did this intentionally so as to either kill the kids, which they did some, kind of like, you know, uh, past policies with abortion in China and things like that. But also they wanted these kids to flow down the Nile so that they could Egyptianize them. And Egyptianizing uh, Asiatic uh, kids was a really, really popular tool for them so that they could turn those kids into Egyptians. And then they could be the same uh, sort of masters over their old people in the north. It's a lot like slavery in uh, America in the 16th century where you had indentured servants, black and white, living alongside each other. And then all of a sudden, the slave ships started bringing over a mass amount of Africans from actually, you know, uh, places where there was a lot of hostile tribal kind of wars. And then all of a sudden, people had to question, okay, so we have these educated indentured servants who are black and white and they're working together. And now we have all these very uneducated 
uh, poorer, very poor blacks that are basically enslaved, how are we gonna think about this situation? Well, it's best for us to all just be racist and think that all black people sort of are inferior to white people. And we'll give those white landowning uh, indentured servants who are a little bit, you know, are basically the same place, same position as these black indentured servants, a little bit of power so they can master over uh, people who would have been in their same socioeconomic class, all right? It's really the same kind of situation. So the whole point of Moses becoming an Egyptian was that eventually he would be able to rule over his own people in the north because he'd be an indigenous ruler, but he'd be an uh, emissary, an ambassador from uh, Egypt. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, cool. History, yeah, right? Well, you know the story, right? It goes the opposite direction. And Moses rises much quicker and, well, it's really because he's basically the, the son of a, a prince in the Egyptian rule. And so as soon as he interacts with this Hebrew who's being mistreated, guys, uh, you know, Moses wasn't the kind of person, I don't think he was like, you know, he's a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew, I'm gonna really stick up for him. He had knew nothing of Hebrew culture. He knew nothing of Hebrew language. He did not identify as a Hebrew at all. He was Egyptian through and through, educated in all the important texts that Egyptians would have been educated uh, with in the libraries that they had. He simply saw an unjust situation and dealt with it a little too firmly. And you can imagine when Pharaoh hears about this, the exact opposite thing that he intended for Moses to be, symbolizing for him, oh my gosh, what if all these Hebrew or Asiatic kids rise up against us in their power? And now my whole plan has backfired on me. So this is a huge deal, what Moses does. It has so much more significance in the, the day and age and in the kingdom that he was in than just he saw a Hebrew being mistreated and was like, oh, we're Hebrew buddies, you know? If he was so Hebrew in his identity, he wouldn't have spent the next 40 years marrying a bunch of non-Hebrew uh, women and living with Raul. Uh, that's how I say his name, but that's just how I like to say it. It's also Jethro. Which one's worse? Pick, you know? Uh, anyway. Um, in the, the place that he was in, the shepherding kind of uh, uh, environment. So you come to 80 years of his life. He's failed once in this whole deal. He's gone and just decided, you know what? I'm gonna be, a, I was a prince. I'm gonna just go live a rural life, do my own deal. And then comes the burning bush. All right, and there we are. Now you're caught up. Great. Gotta give context for these things, I think. Maybe, maybe not. Too much context? Possibly. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Oreb, Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw through the, bu the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So he thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. <laughs> uh, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Why is he afraid to look at God? God had just said, I'm your father. Why is he afraid? He's afraid in the same way that Luke's afraid when he learns about his father, right? He's like, wait a second. This whole thing is mixed up. It's completely opposite of what I thought. My father is not, is, you know, uh, right now, this priest of Midian, which was this kind of like witchcraft, you know, priest. Before that was the Pharaoh. 
how in the heck are you my father of Abraham, Isaac? Of course, he would have known the literature and known who these people were, but had no, in no way uh, understood what was going on. Probably his immediate thought was, oh my gosh, my, my father's a witchcraft. I've married these people. I've done all these other things. I'm about to get struck and be killed. Okay? So, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Now, even just this comment, why the indeed? Why I have indeed seen the misery of my people? He's connecting with Abraham's story of being good, reminding Moses, hey, you're not the only person that understands the misery that's going on in Egypt. Now, by this time, 40 years later, Moses had no connection to it, wasn't probably that concerned about it, but can remember back to his younger days when he had a passion for helping out these people who had been uh, mistreated. And God is now saying, I have seen this too. You're not the only one. I'm good. I'm going to take care of this situation. And Moses probably at that point would have been like, fine, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, unfortunately, um, he's about to pull Moses into this as well, and Moses doesn't want to go back. So, uh, I've come down to rescue them from the land of Egypt and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land, uh, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and all this other stuff. And now the city, uh, uh, the cry of Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Huh. So now go back to where you've been banned, uh, where... Nobody respects and trusts you anymore, where nobody would probably think highly of you or uh, appreciate what you've done. And uh, even the Israelites themselves, you know, remember what they ask when uh, he kills the, the man right next to him, are you going to kill me too? Nobody has any good thing uh, for Moses going back to Egypt. He has no connections to it, and God wants him to go back to the Pharaoh and talk to him, even though it certainly means immediate death. All right? So that should put a little bit of context there for you. And not only that, but he has no idea who this God is. He is as ignorant about this God as Abraham is ignorant about God when he's talking about Sodom being destroyed. Okay, but Moses said to God, and this lists the very anxiety-ridden, doubtful series of questions that just becomes more and more comical. Like, you know how you're sitting with someone and you're, in, you're kind of... Uh, implying all these things to them, you know, trying to like get them to understand, hey, you're not interested in talking to them. Uh, you're not interested in buying this thing from them. Well, Moses has to get like more and more like implying to God, listen, there's no way in hell I'm going. I know that you think so, but it's not going to happen. Like it's just not happening. There's nowhere in my mind that allows for a possibility of, of this to happen. You've messed up. I'm sorry, you're wrong. So Moses starts with, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been 40 years since I've been there. No one knows me. I have no power. Who am I? No big deal, right? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds great, but how can the sign be something that happens after it's already been done, right? Okay, someone's like, hey, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I was going to think about buying a vacuum. Um, but that's a terrible analogy, right? No, people are shaking their head like, let's wrap this up. This is just really all over the place. So sorry, I'm reading the Bible to you and doing a little bit of explanation. Sorry, that's so boring. 
that's the... Anyway, you understand. The sign is not going to happen anytime during this process. It's going to happen after it's already been done. That doesn't seem fair at all, okay? So, and God said, you know, or then Moses said to God, suppose I do go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. God of your fathers. Not his father, it's God of your fathers. He still hasn't pulled that into his identity yet, okay? And they asked me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? This is an interesting question. In the ancient Near East, your name signified everything. Even throughout the Old Testament, we talked about uh, God renaming people. I mean, uh, uh, Cripes, uh, Peter had like seven names in the New Testament. I mean, you know, it's so, so hard to figure out who you're talking to at any time. The name and everything. So everybody, if they heard Ra, they would know the God that they were worshiping. They would know his territory. They would know everything. Moses is ultimately asking, whose name do I use here, okay? If I'm going to have to do this, which he's not still thinking he's going to have to, what name would I even use? Like, identify yourself to me. Tell me what God you are. Of the many gods that I have worshipped, which one are you, okay? That's what he's asking. God said to, to Moses in this famous passage, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Listen, it's impossible really, to explain in our context how silly this would have been, okay? That this God would have no name and be simply titled, I am, okay? It'd be like, you know, I don't know, you are a representative to another nation, and the people are asking, well, what nation are you coming from? That one. I'm coming from that one, all right? Please let me into your country, it's not going to work. I mean, you're not, it's not going to happen unless someone just really wants to make fun of you. That one isn't identifying who this, uh, this nation really is. All right? Not going to happen. Try that the next time you need to ID yourself, all right? Just, you know, <laughs> that reminds me. That reminds <laughs> Yeah, I am. That one, okay, no, I'm not going to share that story too much. I'm too, I'm too long. Okay, uh, so there we go. Um... God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jesus, has sent me to you. This is the name, my, my name forever, the name by which I'm to be remembered from generation to generation. God says, nope, not giving you a category. I'm too big for the categories. You're going to have to begin to understand this uh, if you're really going to be able to identify with me. The elders of, the, of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to him. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, so I'll stretch out my hand, strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. I only have one point, really, from this. The second and most important question, after we ask the question, is God good? Is, is he powerful enough to accomplish his promises? To actually make good on the stuff that he says he's going to do. And that, in this interaction with Moses, is what God is trying to help him understand. I am the only God. I am the one that will accomplish these things. All the promises that I make will come true. All the things that I'm telling you will happen will happen. And in some ways, it's much easier for us to believe in a good God than it is to believe in a powerful God. Because a good God, you know, we want to believe that. The powerful God thing just seems too beyond reality that God is really going to make good on the promises that he's given us as Christians, the promises he's given uh, humankind, the promises to this earth, sounds crazy. And yet this, in my mind, are the two key things 
that God shares about his identity with the people who he first brings into uh, his fold and the very two things that we in our ministering to others and in our own sort of time with God have to be convinced of, that he's good and that he's powerful, that he will make uh, or keep his promises, okay? There are plenty of good characters throughout our movies that aren't powerful enough to accomplish at least immediately what they need to do. I was thinking about that one Lord of the Rings guy, uh, uh, Dumbledore, and, um, you know, when he's like gray, and he's a good gray wizard, right? But then as time goes on, he becomes more powerful to he's like the white wizard, you know what I mean? And so like, he's good, but he wasn't powerful initially to do what he's asking you to do until he got white. Good old Dumbledore. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, excellent point. So, Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they said, Lord, didn't even appear to you. You're crazy. God has already told them the elders will listen to you, okay? Uh, obviously, he doesn't believe in, uh, in his promise or think that he's powerful enough to make this happen, okay? The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? <laughs> a staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake. Trying to kind of give him an idea like, hey, I got some power here. Now, this is possible, right? I mean, Apparently, the Pharaoh and in, in his uh, you know, magicians were able to accomplish some of these same things. Moses had probably already seen some of this crazy stuff go on. Whether or not you believe this stuff happens or not is another story. Uh, the point is that Moses would have seen these things uh, already. Reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, became a staff again. Uh, then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses did it, and then he took it out, and it was leprous like snow. What the, how, oh my, that is a terrible trick, all right? to convince him, like he's already really having trouble with this thing, uh, but to put his hand, make it leprous. Okay. Um, now, so then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they not believe these two or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, <laughs> neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He is straight out, running out of excuses, all right? I mean, just one after another, straight up running out of excuses. He got nothing left, man. He's tired. It's now just become like, let me just find anything I can in my mind to make this uh, work so that I do not have to do this, okay? Uh, I do this all the time with people, come up with as many excuses as I can, and they just blow them out of the water, and then I'm just desperate for excuses. Um, but that's what he's doing, right? Uh, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? who makes him deaf or dumb, who gives him sight or makes him blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak and will teach you what to say. Now this is important too, okay? I know I'm going long here. I, it's terrible. I know it's so awful, but at least I'm preaching this with all of our college students here um, or even less or more bored by my sermons. Um, so far, this God has identified himself in some kind of generic and general ways. But to say that he created man would have been like unlike any claim any God had ever made before, okay? Gods don't create man. They simply use them and utilize them, all right? For the most part, people just had a naturalistic understanding of how people came into existence. And the gods sort of manipulated them. But this God, uh, he controls even the mouth uh, and because uh, he created it. Uh, so then finally Moses is honest. For the first time he's honest. Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. <laughs> finally you get honesty from Moses. 
It's just like, all right, excuse is done. I'm not going to do it. Please, just please, okay? Send someone else to do it. And then the Lord got angry. Uh, what about your uh, brother, Aaron? And he, he kind of, and you know the rest of the story, right? Uh, is uh, he goes and, you know, Aaron's uh, helps out, although helping out is a, a relative term. So guys, I, I, that was it. That's all I really wanted to do was try to look through some of these passages to try to figure out exactly what it is that's going on in some of these interactions with God, which are almost always about identity. Now I want you to, to just fast forward. I'm going to end this story uh, or these, you know, these points with this. When you fast forward to Moses dealing with his stiff neck, the stiff-necked Israelites in the desert, and when God wants to do what he did to Sodom and completely annihilate them all, what does Moses ask God? He asks him to pass by so that he can at least get a sense of his presence. And he tells God in Exodus 42, in one of the most profound, life-changing, pulled the identity of God into this, Lord, I will not do this if you do not go with me. Because the only thing that separates me from the rest of these people is that you are leading and guiding me. And you go from Moses, terrified of leading, doesn't want to have anything to do with God, to now his entire identity is wrapped up in God. Everything that he's doing is wrapped up in the God that he now believes is righteous, is good. Uh, and uh, that's pretty awesome stuff. So, Leslie, I'm going to let you come up, do a little talk on, uh, uh, you know what, maybe we should do that at the end. What do you think? I spent a lot of words, right? I've been, I've been doing a lot of words. People need to get up. They need to not have words. All right. Um, so we're going to uh, take communion now. Let's do somewhat quick. Uh, and, um, and then we'll come back and we'll sing. Uh, and then Leslie will kind of end us off with a challenge on, on giving. Um, yeah. God, you are truly good to us. And uh, we don't even begin to completely understand or can explain how good you really are. We get fragments of it in our lives, glimpses, visions of your goodness. And even then, we often attribute it to a variety of other sources. Um, help us to grow as Christians in our understanding of how good you really are. To understand that um, the best of life, the best of ourselves, can only come from you as a source. Um, help us to understand uh, and remember how you fulfill your promises, to remember the things that you've done uh, in our lives, in the lives of our church, of people uh, in the scripture and out of how you fulfilled your promises, how you are powerful enough to make things uh, happen that you say are going to happen, to speak things into existence, and yet you still listen to us and guide us and help us understand those things. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus and um, just how much he explains to us and shows us your goodness and your power. We celebrate him now as we take communion. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.